Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Well, happy Pride Month, folks, and lock up your children as we ponder why on earth we ever legalized same-sex marriage and unleashed this whirlwind. Well, welcome to the show, I think. I'm going to unpack the dark underbelly of Pride Month and what it means for our children and grandchildren. I'll be doing this with my regular contributor, Kiralee Smith. It's also been another horror week for the cost of living and families are being hit hard. One year ago, the Albanese government came to office promising lower electricity prices, lower inflation, i.e. that your groceries and your petrol would be cheaper, and they were promising higher wages. Has any of that happened? You be the judge. I'll be looking at all that a little later in the show, so please don't touch that dial. But first, something very significant and rare happened in Canberra yesterday. To set the scene, take a look at this. So this is pretty grisly stuff. Tell us about it. Yeah, Ryan, look, it is, it is pretty grisly stuff. And it's, I think, one of those things people don't even realise goes on um, out there in the, in the community. Uh, it's, it's a practice, uh, I guess, which, which relates to, to, to abortions uh, and abortions that have effectively missed, uh, missed their target, if you like, and the babies that are born alive as a result of those uh, and in many states around the country at the moment, the directions given to the medical practitioner are simply to allow the child to simply die. So this made it to a Senate committee and hearings were held in Canberra yesterday into a bill requiring medical care of babies born alive after botched abortions. Now, leftist Liberals, Labor, Green and Teal politicians say that this doesn't happen, but the evidence is that it does every other week here in Australia. Figures validated by the Parliamentary Library show that in Western Australia, 27 babies had been born alive and left to die between 1999 and 2016. In the 10 years to 2015, 204 Queensland babies had died in this way, while 33 in Victoria perished after botched abortions between 2012 and 2016. These are all figures that have been officially verified. Now, under Queensland's 
a radical abortion law, it is illegal to render such babies medical care. They just must be left to have their lives expire. Now, the bill, it's titled the Children Born Alive Protection Bill. It's a private senator's bill sponsored by Senators Matt Canavan, Alex Antic, who you saw in that clip earlier, and Senator Ralph Babette of United Australia Policy. Now, Family uh, Party, sorry, I should say. Family First supports this bill. The idea of a bill to protect these babies was first raised by former LNP member for Dawson, George Christensen, a good friend of mine. After he read my book, I kid you not, notes from 20 years in the trenches of the culture wars. In the book, I detailed the work of Liberal state MPs Nick Goyran and Mark Robinson, who first brought the issue to light in their respective parliaments of Western Australia and Queensland. These men uh, unearthed those statistics about babies born alive and left to die, those stats that I gave you just a moment ago. That was the work of those two courageous state parliamentarian. Now their work in turn inspired George Christensen to draft the original bill. And so actually Lyle, um, one thing that your book has actually spawned me to do is uh, uh, to work on a private member's bill uh, to ensure that there is medical assistance for infants born alive. Even if that is a fruitless exercise, that is something I'm going to put before the Parliament. And Lyle, that's yours. You have pushed me on to do that from reading your book. I have had the, the Parliamentary Council actually draft for me a bill. It is the Human Rights Children Born Alive Protection Bill. Now, despite the good work done by initially George Christensen and now by Senators Canavan, Antic and Babette, and the advocates who were fronting yesterday's hearings in Canberra, this bill sadly will go nowhere. It will be voted down by Liberals, by Labor, Greens and crossbenchers like David Pocock. That the bill though has seen the light of day in and of itself is a miracle. It is extremely rare for a pro-life piece of legislation to reach a Senate committee, let alone make it to the floor of the parliament. Uh, anything to do with abortion touches a nerve in Canberra. I've known this from experience as a lobbyist over 10 years. Anytime someone tried to make progress on the issue of human rights for the unborn, uh, the wagons would be circled, there'd be high emotion, and uh, they would come down like a ton of bricks on any pro-life parliamentarian who dare try to raise this issue. Now, the evidence of atrocities being committed by the abortion industry are irrefutable. The evidence for the humanity of unborn babies, unborn humans, is irrefutable. The senators have provided a platform for this issue to be ventilated and heard by ears that constantly block the truth in Canberra. Already abortion radicals are in the media defaming the Born Alive Bill. One activist, Public Health Association Chief Terry Slevin, told uh, last week's Australian newspaper that the senators were engaging in the deadly politics of denying women's reproductive freedom. Now, nothing could be further from the truth. How is providing medical care for a baby born alive after a botched abortion deadly to a woman? The truth is, the abortion industry is deadly, uh, not to mothers, although sometimes it can be, but it's absolutely lethal to babies. Senator Canavan also told The Australian, uh, quote, I would just hope that people let the facts do the talking in this debate. The suffering of newborn babies born alive after an abortion is an unknown tragedy 
that does occur every other week in this country. Those babies are human lives. The debate is not helped by inflammatory accusations, end quote. Good on you, Senator Matt Canavan. Now, the pro-life movement in the United States has proven that constant advocacy, uh, that by constant advocacy, the public can be won over to this issue. The state of Texas, uh, which has a population bigger than Australia, has a ban on all abortions. Florida and several other states in the US have enacted heartbeat laws protecting the life of an unborn baby when her or his heart begins beating, usually at five to six weeks of gestation. The radical left and the libertarian right have protected insane laws like abortion by constant public advocacy. Constant public advocacy of the truth is the way that the pro-life side can win. We just have to get on the playing field as these senators have done uh, in a small way by these hearings yesterday in Canberra. It takes courage and it means using the tools of democracy like Senate inquiries. While the Born Alive bill is likely to die in the short term, it will rise again if pro-life parliamentarians and advocates sustain the debate in public. Now, despite having some excellent pro-life individuals, none of the political parties with representation in the federal parliament are pro-life. Family First, the Democratic Labor Party, which has uh, someone in the Victorian parliament, and the Australian Christians in WA are the only pro-life parties in this nation. For Family First, human rights for the unborn is non-negotiable. If the rights of the most vulnerable are not safe, no one's rights are. Well, it's time for my regular segment with girls, women's and children's advocate, Kiralee Smith of Binary. Kiralee, it's so good that we get to speak about this each week because so much happens in this crazy, mad moment of our history where serious people say that men can get pregnant, etc. Now, it's, it's Pride Month um, and we're going to unpack this. Um, Kiralee, just to get started, what does Pride Month mean to you as a mother and as an advocate for the truth about gender? Yeah, look, well, increasingly it's becoming even more disturbing every year that goes by. But um, I think this year it's interesting, Lyle, because a lot more people are awake to the agenda and uh, we're seeing a lot more pushback. So um, I'm actually interested to see uh, where this is going to go this month and uh, the issues particularly of gender ideology are being highlighted and the sexualization of children. Uh, so, yeah, I, I'm actually a little bit hopeful this Pride Month <laughs> that yeah. the spotlight will be on the right <laughs> Absolutely. Look, I, I really agree with you, Kiralee, and this is some of the stuff we want to talk about today. Um, there is hope that mainstream people are, are not buying the nonsense. And a proof point of that was the extraordinary response to Matt Walsh's documentary, What is a Woman? Um, he made that available on Twitter, I guess, with Elon Musk, uh, the, the boss of Twitter's permission. It was available for free, I think, for about 24 hours or so. It had 75 million downloads. Take a look. A woman is not anything in particular. There is not one particular thing. It could be many things to many people. Some women have penises, right? Some men have vaginas. I like scented candles. And I've watched Sex and the City. Yeah. How do I know if, if I'm a woman? That's a great question. You're not a scientist. You're not a gender studies major. No. How do you know that you're a man? I guess because I got a dick. Can a man become a woman? <laughs> <laughs> That's the funniest bit in the whole documentary. I think uh, the, the African tribesmen, they know what every 
normal person knows it, but what our intellectual Western elites uh, don't have a clue about. Uh, Kiralee, Matt Walsh, I think, had a hide in, in dropping this out during Pride Month. Uh, the documentary came out last year, of course, and it's been a sensation. Um, what does the extraordinary response uh, from the audience tell us about uh, what's going on in, in this moment that people are starting to wake up, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And there's an appetite for truth. And, you know, people like myself and others have been asking our ministers for women, our prime ministers and lots of people, what is a woman for many years now? And uh, thankfully, Matt Walsh put that into a documentary. And the more we see the ridiculous responses to that, the more people wake up. So I think it was a very, very clever uh, idea to release it uh, for free at the beginning of Pride Month. And the results speak for themselves. Yeah, 175 million downloads. That is a phenomenon. And of course, completely bypassing the mainstream media who don't report on this fairly or accurately. Now, um, some of the other disturbing things that are happening during Pride Month, but I think which will work in our favour in helping the awakening. Uh, we're seeing everyone from uh, Hollywood to Sesame Street wanting us to get into the swing of things. Now, I apologise to my audience for having to show some of that, but Kiralee, there's no words for that, are there? It's mind-boggling. It's so repulsive and perverse, and there's no way that heterosexual couples would get away with that in public, nor would they want to, but for these people to do it under the banner of pride is... Yeah, there are no words. It is repulsive. Yeah, and, and of course, that was um, from a supposedly family-friendly Pride Parade uh, in Pride Month in West Hollywood. Um, now, Kiralee, did you, like me, notice the bestiality theme running through that parade? Um, you know, this is what we've invited uh, in when we degendered marriage back in 2017, isn't it? It absolutely is, you know, and Corey Bernardi was absolutely slammed for his slippery slope comment and yet here we are, a family-friendly parade down the main street in broad daylight and these men are practising uh, their fantasies, playing them out on the, on the main street for everyone to see and now it's all over social media as well. Yeah, that, that's right. And, and, you know, look, you know, apart from the, uh, the lurid image we saw there, it, it's the people walking along with, um, with uh, animal masks on, you know, I've talked about this before on the show, you know, the idea of mixing animals and human sexuality, I mean, this is unthinkable stuff that's now being put forward as normal. And this is, this is what Pride Month, uh, what the rainbow flag is telling us we've all got to celebrate and put in front of our children. Now, speaking of children, um, another Pride Month contribution um, came from Sesame Street. Um, Kiralee, I don't know about you, but I grew up watching Sesame Street and Big Bird and Mr. Snuffleupagus and Oscar the Grouch. But um, as James McPherson um, pointed out on Sky News this week, why does Sesame, Sesame Street want to celebrate divergent sexual orientations with your children? Hi, Elmo and I wanted to share that everyone is always welcome on Sesame Street. This month and every month, we want to uplift and celebrate our LGBTQIA plus family, friends and communities. Yeah, that's right, Miss Ariana. <laughs> And I love you, Elmo. Uh -huh. <laughs> 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 
Now, Kiralee, this is quite insidious. Of course, we all want everyone to feel welcome. That's never been in question. But uh, to, to use Sesame Street to induct, you know, three to five-year-olds into that which ends up in the streets of West Hollywood, do parents know what they're getting themselves into? Look, it is utterly ridiculous. They're hiding in plain sight or not even trying to hide it anymore. They're saying the quiet bits out loud. I mean, let's look at it, Lyle. They're saying sexual orientations and sexual identities now need to be fostered on to foisted onto three to five year olds. The word sexual is in capital letters, is highlighted, is the whole point of pride. And now we're ramming it down children's throats. Children do not ever ever need to be sexualized. It is appalling that uh, there is very little outrage about this and that parents are swallowing this claptrap, rubbish nonsense, all in the name of tolerance and diversity. They need to wake up and understand that their children deserve protection and they should not ever be sexualized. Yeah, absolutely. And shame on Sesame Street. Um, as parents and grandparents, we've just got to keep our kids away from this stuff now. It's just not safe. Uh, who would have ever thought we'd get here? But uh, Kiralee, um, this next clip, um, is, which has also come out during Pride Month, uh, is a little bit hard to watch. And I agonised over whether we should show it, but I think we should. And, um, you know, all, all this starts with Sesame Street celebrating Pride Week or Pride Month with three-year-olds. And this is where it ends up. Years ago, I got gender reaffirming surgery. Here's a f***ing honest update. Do I regret it? Short answer is yes. Don't get me wrong. I got it done twice. It looks Barbie. Why do I regret it? Well, because I will never be able to live a normal life. After the surgery, you have to start dilating to keep the space they gave you. You start from doing it four times a day to once a week for the rest of your life. I was fine with that. See, the problem is... I had major complications and now for some reason I need to do it every single day. Now obviously I've had relations and girls we all know guys don't fucking know what to do. So it's not really worth it to me. The problem is I cannot stop. If I stop it's going to close up and create a bubble and that bubble could literally create an infection that could... The two options here are I dilate for the rest of my life or I get it removed surgically. Surgery goes for 70000 and I don't want to go through that again, so I guess I'm dilating. Now, now Kiralee, for, for those who might be a bit confused, and, and I don't blame anyone for being confused, what we saw there was um, a young man uh, who has uh, tried to become a woman, and he's talking about what's been done to his body surgically. You can only describe it as mutilation. But you and I have both got sons, and it goes without saying, we would always love our sons, but no parent would wish this upon their child. It's, uh, it's horrific. That man has been sold an extraordinary lie that if he has some surgery um, that he will, you know, have his problems solved, that he'll become a woman, that he will, um, you know, he, he the, these things, he could live a, a normal life. And it's just, it's a lie. It is so unkind to these young men and women who are uh, chopping off body bits, who are having reconstructions, who are on drugs, now lifetime you know, medical industry patients, customers basically, um, and they will never achieve the goal of changing their sex because it is impossible to do. And not only will they not achieve that goal, they put themselves at great risk of the sort of infections and complications that that guy was just talking about. And, you know, we saw it in the What is a Woman documentary as well with Scott Nugent, that's a, a male, uh, sorry, a female who um, had reconstructive surgery 
hor- horrific things done to her arm to construct a penis and she's had infection after infection after infection and uh, many, many complications. We're hearing more and more about it. This is what people need to hear and see and understand that they're being sold a lie, that their issues will not be resolved. In fact, they'll probably become even more complicated and life uh, life-changing and life-threatening. Yeah, absolutely. Look, look, your heart just breaks for that young man. Uh, he is uh, forever scarred. Uh, he's been castrated. He will. He can never get his male genitalia back. He will never have sexual function, and he's got to deal with the complications of of uh, what he describes as a hole that's been created that he's got to dilate, and and he's looking at another seventy thousand uh, dollars to try and have um, some sort of corrective surgery. It's just unbelievable, Kiralee. Um And and so you know, this is in the context of last night's AFL pride game between Sydney Swans and St Kilda. You know, this is what, when they fly the rainbow flag at the SCG as they did last night and hold a pride game, um, this is what they're celebrating, uh, those victims. Um, You rightly reported this week on the Binary blog some research, which yet again shows that gender transition, like the young man in that video, is not helping people get free of their anxiety. The, The social science is showing this, isn't it? Correct. That's right. Mental health issues are not going down once uh, people are medicalised. So whether they've become drug dependent for life or having these surgeries, their mental health issues are not being addressed. So they're still suffering from things like depression, anxiety and other things requiring further medicalisation. And after surgery, um, studies have shown that uh, suicide risks actually do increase in um, in these people. And so, again, you know, we just get this painted, lovely rainbow picture that everything will be fine if you go down this pathway, but it's actually not the truth. And then to complicate things even more, when academics attempt to study these things and to really do the rigorous, um, you know, heavily invested studies, they're Uh, the money is withdrawn, they're ostracised by the universities and all the rest of it. And children are the ones who are suffering the most in all of this. So, you know, we need these inquiries and we need uh, thorough research done because all the research so far is showing it it doesn't resolve the problems that people, um, that cause the gender dysphoria in the first place. Yeah, it's so ironic, Kiralee. I mean, we're told we have to affirm young people in their gender confusion because they might commit suicide. Schools have got to put this in the curriculum, et cetera, et cetera. Yet, uh, as the research is showing, it's not helping. Um, I hope people are getting a bit of a sense of what Pride Week and what the rainbow flag is is all about. It's so important. Sorry, Pride Month, I should say. Wish <laughs> If only it was a week. It's a whole month of June globally. But, um, Kiralee, another um, article that um, you know caught my attention, and I know you've spoken about this in the past, but uh, this was in the Wall Street Journal. It's entitled The Truth About Puberty Blockers. It's by Gerald Posner. Now, um, I think this was also discussed in the Australian Senate last week. I believe it was Senator Malcolm Roberts from One Nation asking the Chief Health Officer and the Therapeutic Goods Administration, but Posner makes the same point in his uh, article that the puberty blockers that are given to very young children, that's before you know, that young man that we saw has surgery, right? This is really early on in the piece, as young as 10 years old. It, it's a synthetic chemical and it's given to children off-label. It's not even approved for the use of treating gender dysphoria by the Therapeutic Goods Administration in Australia or the Food and Drug Administration in the US. This is a big experiment on children. 
it is totally an experiment on children. Those drugs are only have only been tested and used for precocious puberty. So children who are entering into puberty too young that they want to pause that puberty so that uh, their peers can catch up. Um, and it does cause complications. We already know that. As you said, it is a chemical castration drug. Uh, Dr. Marcy Bowers, who is a male to female transgender surgeon, transgender surgeon, uh, has said on uh, the record that Children, boys who go on these puberty blockers will never experience orgasm. So their sexual function is completely removed. And there's also great concerns about sterility, brain and bone development issues with these puberty blockers, the part of the brain that's targeted. So all of this is happening on children throughout Australia, you know, and the Royal Children's Hospital on their own website says puberty blockers are reversible it's simply not true and it simply hasn't been studied enough and these drugs are being used off-label. Off-label, I mean, that they are drugs that are available for treating things like prostate cancer, but not for treating children who are confused about their gender. The other thing in, um, in Posner's uh, Wall Street Journal article that uh, really hit me was he mentioned that uh, puberty blockers, the, these synthetic drugs, are used for the chemical castration of repeat sex offenders in America, and yet here we are in Australia prescribing them to kids. Have we gone mad? Yep, totally. That's the only way to describe it, Lyle, because it's cruel, it's nasty, it's damaging these children permanently for life. These children cannot consent to puberty blockers. They cannot consent to all of the side effects. And any parent that uh, allows their children or consents on behalf of their child is ignorant and is doing an, an, an untold damage to these children. And they really deserve medical practitioners to tell them the truth about these things. I feel for these parents because they're being sold a lie, uh, but they really need to ask more thorough questions to get the results and to understand the exact complications that these children are going to face. I think there's going to be an enormous amount of litigation in future years, Lyle, directly because of this. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, you and I have talked about this before, but I wish that people could sue the politicians who are, are allowing this to legally happen and who are allowing uh, gender fluid ideology to be taught to children in schools. Um, it's just uh, absolutely outrageous. Um, Kiralee, um, there was um, some good news this week, though, in spite of all the bad news. Um, now, tell us about what happened with that Terry White chemist. I think this will cheer people up. Yeah, well, uh, Rachel Wong of the Women's Forum uh, noted that Ter Terry White had used the word birthing person uh, in their uh, promotional materials and she challenged that and uh, said, no, we're women, we're not birthing people. And uh, uh, others like The Real Rushkin took it on and uh, went viral on social media and to Terry White's credit, they made the correction. They took out the words birthing person and reinserted the word woman because that's who we are. We are women. We're not birthing people or chest feeders or any of that other nonsense. We are women. And only women can get pregnant and only women can give birth. Well, well, that's uh, a great way to, to wrap up our discussion on Pride Month, Kiralee, and it just shows the power of uh, people if we will get active, and so none of us should ever lose hope uh, in this fight. Uh, Kiralee, we're also grateful for what you're doing. Uh, before you go, Kiralee, tell us the, the latest in your legal dramas, the two apprehended uh, personal violence orders against you and uh, the legal action in the, uh, in the New South Wales Discrimination Board. 
Yeah, look, it's it's a long, slow process and the process is the punishment. Um, we have one hearing date for the 18th of September in Sydney and we're still awaiting a hearing date uh, for a trial for Tari. Uh, I believe later on this month we should be given that date. Well, we'll certainly keep abreast of all that. Kiralee, thank you so much for continuing in the fight and for sharing your insights with us today. Thanks for having me, Lara. Now, as we've been discussing, it's Pride Month where some Western nations celebrate everything LGBTIQA+, with no thought about the consequences. But it's no longer all smooth sailing for the rainbow political activists. As popular global television, uh, children's television program Sesame Street was inducting toddlers into the harmful gender fluid and sexualized world of Pride Month, a regional government in Italy axed funding from Rome's Pride Parade due to be held this Saturday. The approach to Global Pride Month in America and Italy could not be starker. The Lazio region, which takes in the Italian capital, is similar to an Australian state jurisdiction. Its president, Francesco Rocca, is aligned with Prime Minister Giorgia Maloney, who is steering Italy in a family-friendly direction. Francesco Rocca's government pulled the Pride Parade funding because the organisers were openly promoting surrogacy for homosexual men. This is an unethical practice of procuring children because it robs a child of the love of his or her mother. Now, Family First believes surrogacy is also unethical in heterosexual contexts for the same reason. Australian same-sex marriage activists have been pushing for the legalisation of commercial surrogacy because they don't believe enough women are available who are willing to gestate a baby for free. That's called altruistic surrogacy. They want a commercial rental market for women's wombs and a cash market for babies. But in Italy, the government is putting children's rights first. The Reuters news agency reported, quote, Maloney's government has told mayors to stop registering the children of same-sex parents and her ruling coalition has presented a bill aimed at prosecuting couples who go abroad to have a baby via a surrogate. End quote. Now, Family First believes that the rights of children to know the love of their mother and father wherever possible should take precedence over the desires of adults. Children sadly miss out on a mother or father because of tragedy or desertion, but it should never happen because government policy mandates it. Family First believes all taxpayer funding should be withdrawn from so-called pride events. If Rome can do it, so can we. Now, the Albanese government came to power promising lower electricity prices, lower inflation and higher wages. One year on, we have sky-high electricity prices and sky-high inflation and much lower real wages. Get used to it because most of the policies of the Al Albanese government are inflationary, driving your cost of living up. The only tool being used to address inflation's wealth-sapping effect is the blunt instrument of the Reserve Bank's interest rate rises. And Australia's 3.3 million mortgage holders this week copped their 12th rise in 13 months. It's not good enough that the RBA is the only player on the inflation-fighting field. The burden of bringing this under control must be shared by more people than those with home loans. RBA, RBA Governor Philip Lowe has repeatedly warned that high immigration and lack of land supply and government spending were the other key inputs into the board's decision-making processes on interest rates. 
But the government takes no notice and Treasurer Jim Chalmers is out of the blocks shifting blame from the government to the RBA. The reality is that whether it's budget spending that's out of control, energy or housing policy, it is the Albanese government action not the war in Ukraine that is throwing petrol on the dumpster fire that is Australia's 7% inflation figure. Australia's cost of living crisis is entirely the creation of its political class, and it's from both sides. Labor is just making it worse, quicker. It will get the blame at the ballot box and risks being a one-term government. Here's why it is hurting you. Let's, let's start with the housing affordability crisis. Basic economics of supply and demand tells us that a lack of supply, in this case, land for development and houses for sale or rent, will result in higher prices. That's just logical. And of course they have. Instead of making things better by working with state and local governments to cut red tape and fast track land release, the government will bring 315,000 new migrants in the next 12 months with more to come in the following year. Now that's um, a city almost the size of Canberra each year for the next two years. There's nowhere in Sydney or Melbourne where most of these people will go uh, for these people to live, to get healthcare and to drive cars and use public transport. The way to ease the housing affordability crisis is not to pull a public policy lever that makes less housing available, which is what the government has done. But here we are. No wonder the kids can't afford to buy a home and have little hope as rents keep rising. Immigration, of course, is no bad thing, but we must plan for it. And sadly, this is not happening. Like the housing crisis, the electricity price crisis is entirely politician caused. A good way to bring inflation down would be to bring down the cost of electricity, but both sides of politics have demonised coal and gas, banned uranium, subsidised windmills and solar panels, and forgotten to make sure we had a backup plan for night times and windless days. It seems that every week an energy expert warns that the East Coast is facing blackouts and further price hikes. This week it was the turn of the Head of Energy Australia, Mark Collett. He said the power grid on the East Coast was precarious. Is anyone awake yet? How does this happen in a modern country like Australia? Over 20 years of Liberal and Labor government, we have squandered our competitive advantage as a resource-rich superpower for no environmental gain, but increasing economic pain as climate catastrophism has driven public policy. Now, the people in the suburbs, they're the ones that are paying for this elite virtue signaling. There are many accelerants that can, that can make a flame roar, and nothing feeds the inflation fire more than government handouts as much as we all like free stuff. And the other thing fueling it, of course, is our $702 billion of government debt, and that's just federal government debt. Now, it's unfair to keep blaming the Reserve Bank for doing, for, for doing its, his part, uh, this is Philip Lowe for doing his part, uh, with interest rates, again, as I say, that's just one lever. Uh, when the Treasurer, Jim Chalmers, throws $14 billion in borrowed money at households to help them pay for the cost of living crisis that he and his predecessor government has caused. Now, a year into the Albanese government and spending remains unsustainable and there are no serious attempts to tackle debt. The 2.4 million low-paid workers who won a 5.75% wage rise from the Fair Work Commission uh, last Friday will have this increase and more gobbled up in higher rents, higher mortgages, and higher electricity costs, and of course, higher inflation. 
It is unjust. Families are hurting for no good reason. We have wealth for toil in this country, but our politicians are foolish. If the government allowed coal, gas and uranium to be used until viable, cost-effective energy alternatives were found, a major driver of inflation would be fixed quickly. The trifecta would be completed if the government worked on land release and curtailing its spending. Sadly, our government can't understand basic biology to find a woman. It is not going to understand the basics of economics, supply and demand and the consequences of debt. Instead, blind climate ideology drives uncosted and uninvented energy systems or energy systems that are yet to be invented. Corporate Australia's lust for cheap labour and the government's addiction to the sugar hit to GDP drives our immigration policy. There's a lack of will and courage to address the land supply issues and there's no discipline on, on the spending front. Like Gough Whitlam and Kevin Rudd before him, Labor's Anthony Albanese has not learned the lessons of economic reality or history. As the pain heightens, so does the chance this will be a one-term government. Now before I go, the BBC in the UK is reporting that gonorrhea and syphilis sex infections have reached record levels in England. Now this is after 50 years of safe sex education. Now I know the figures are similar in Australia, periodically we see the same headlines here. Now here's a thought, the idea of married, monogamous, heterosexual sex looks more attractive with each passing failure of the sexual revolution. Children might even prefer it if their parents were this way. Society might even benefit. But don't expect to see that message in a government funded sex education campaign anytime soon. Well, that's all I have time for today. Don't forget to make ADHTV your go-to for analysis and opinion. Head to the ADHTV website or download the app. Don't forget, there's also terrific regular political commentary on the Family First blog at familyfirstparty.org.au. That's familyfirstparty.org.au. I'm on Twitter at Lyle Shelton and also on Facebook and Instagram. Thanks so much for your company and until next week, keep speaking up.